Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 134 of Yoga Land. So I feel it's a little bittersweet. This is my last episode of 2018. Yes, I am taking a two-week break. I'm taking Christmas off and New Year's off. And it it feels like a big deal to do that because I'm here every week. But I just need a little break. And I'm sure you do too. So for my last episode of the year, I am interviewing Sarah Powers, who, if anyone has listened to me for any length of time, you know she has been a huge influence on my yoga practice, my meditation practice, and my life. So it was really sweet to talk to her for the last episode of the year. And it took me about two years of doing the podcast to work up the nerve to be able to interview her. (laughs) So if you are not familiar with Sarah, she's been teaching for a very long time. She's been teaching since the late 80s. She's the founder and author of Insight Yoga, which is her own approach to yoga that, that weaves together yoga, Buddhism, Taoism, and transpersonal psychology. She is married to Ty Powers, who was on the podcast last week. It's really so great to talk to both of them or to listen to both of these podcasts one after the other because you can see how well they complement each other. So I spent a lot of time asking Sarah how they raised their daughter, Imani Jade. I couldn't help myself. I mean, they have such a similar family structure to Jason and I just they raised Imani Jade in the Bay Area. She's an only child. You know, they've got the yoga teacher life going on. I was just really curious. And even if you don't have a child, I think it's just really interesting to think about how people apply this practice to their very real lives and how they embody it and how they model it and how they pass it down without creating an aversion in the people around them. If you just get tired of me asking questions about family things, I start to ask Sarah more specifically about her teaching and what she's up to about halfway through the podcast. I don't think you will want to do this because Sarah is just such a fascinating person to listen to, and she's so thoughtful and clearly has done so much of the work of this practice that it just comes through in whatever she's talking about. Before we get to the interview, I just want to thank all of you for listening. I was with a really good friend the other day, and she was complimenting me on the podcast and just doing it. And I said, you know, the best part of doing it has been that I don't feel isolated in my life. Even though I live in the city, I have always done a very quiet profession, you know, writing and editing. And when I was on staff at Yoga Journal, I at least had colleagues around me. But if I was not putting this out there for all of you and and just sort of getting to know you in the way that I do either at live trainings or retreats or via email or social media, I think I would feel really, really isolated. Jason's traveling a lot. My daughter's in school now. So it's just been such a boon for me that I wasn't expecting to have a real sense of community, which I do with all of you. And wouldn't be possible if you weren't out there listening and talking to me and letting me know what you think. So I am just genuinely, really, truly grateful for all of you this this holiday season and be holding all of you in my heart. And speaking of holding things in my heart, something that is so dear to my heart, what a great transition that was, wasn't it? It wasn't even planned. I am 
starting in January, leading a little meditation invitation. I mentioned it last week or maybe the week before on the podcast. It's going to start January 14th, and it's going to be for three weeks. And I I chose three weeks because they say that it takes 21 days to create a habit. However, this is not an every single day you have to sit every single day invitation. I'm creating video meditations that are short and sweet and very doable that are perfect for beginners or inspiring for people who have been meditating for a long time. And so you'll be sitting with me a few times a week. And I'm also recording a few special bonus podcasts with Jason as a part of this whole program to support you all. So I'm really excited about it. It's my first time ever doing anything like this, and I really, really hope you will join me. It's a great way to start the year off setting the tone that you want to set and also giving yourself time to incorporate self-care into your life because I believe meditation is like the ultimate form of self-care. So if you want to learn more Go to jasonyoga.com slash sit with us. jasonyoga.com slash sit with us. And I'm just creating a little email list for this program, and I will email you with more details, and I will let you know when it's ready for registration. And if you are on this email list, you will be part of a flash sale two days before the registration officially opens. So go to jasonyoga.com slash sit with us to let me know that you're interested. Okay, enjoy the interview with Sarah. Now that I have a young child, I would love to ask you about the traveling and the teaching that you did as she was growing up. Well, first of all, you homeschooled her. I want to ask you how old she is. Oh, she's six. She's six. Okay. She's in first okay. grade. Yeah. yeah. And she's, her, name? her name is Sophia. Yeah. Sophia. Yeah. yeah. She's actually struggling in school a little bit right now. She's just not a very linear little person, which I know a lot of them aren't. And so I think about the decision that you made, and I definitely consider it. And I know I have a lot of homeschooling parents who listen. So how did you make the decision to homeschool? And then did you start by homeschooling and then you all started traveling together? Or did it kind of happen all at once? We were homeschooling before the traveling, mm-hmm. so that made leaping out of her regular routine easy because it was mostly courses, like a drama course we would set her up for that would last a few months, and then when it ended and there was a show or a showcase, then we felt like, well, now we can go anywhere. But we started traveling when she was about five. Mm-hmm. And she had been in preschool and kindergarten, and she was just at that time of needing to find where she would leap off from kindergarten to grade school. So we were looking all around the Bay Area at the appropriate fit, Mm -hmm. since there's so much time spent there that the conditioning would need to be a nice blend with how we were hoping to influence her. And we looked a lot at Waldorf schools and Montessori schools and just, you know, independent schools like 
the Sudbury Valley schools. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with those, which are more about following a child's curiosity rather than teaching them any specifics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Out of New York, we were doing a lot of research and even thought of moving to New York for because that school is so new, so unique. But eventually, we came to the idea that if we got some resources from online and there was at that time homeschooling bookstore sections in some of the education bookstores in Berkeley, that if we just gathered some materials to take with us, I mean, being so young, she didn't need a lot of direction yet. What what would that be like? And mm-hmm. let's just take it one year at a time. And I remember reading about a high school teacher who had a famous book that a lot of homeschoolers read of, but I haven't got the title in my mind right now, but we read it back then. And he said at the end of the book, if I had to do it over again, I would homeschool my children rather than send them to formal schooling. That's more for the collective than the individual. Mm -hmm. And that struck us as interesting from somebody who'd gotten awards as, you know, a a high school teacher. And uh, we sat in, I think uh, I sat in on a day in her class before we committed to the homeschooling and I watched the teacher share a story and some ideas and the kids were sitting around and then she asked them to repeat some of the key points she had said and a bunch of kids raised their hands and those who had the answer quite quickly and the most similar to how she had said it then got a gold star that was you know on a wall hanging as like a mandala, you know, like very Mm -hmm. special, sacred piece of art. And Imani, our daughter, was much quieter whenever there's a group. And she also takes her time to digest something and won't come out automatically with a regurgitation. And I went home and discussed it with Ty, my husband, and we both thought, you know, we she may lose her sense of being natural with her intellect and not feel very smart if all the kids around who are more extroverted are the ones praised. So that made us pause and think, let's try the interaction just with us. And at first it was, when when you think of this talk we're on right now as being also about yoga, I would practice in the mornings, often until noon, in different kinds of methods. And she would just be invited into the space and she could sit with her stuffed animals in her blankie. And when she got a little older, she could color. And then eventually she taught herself how to read Mm. just by read to. And then eventually she was reading to me while I was in yin poses. So it was a natural format for her to grow, for me to listen and connect. And I never wanted her to be in um, competition with my inner practices. I wanted to feel like it was a field that we could relate together in. Yeah, it's interesting. Sophia sounds actually kind of similar to Amani Jade, um, just temperament-wise. And she also like taught herself to read just from me reading to her. Suddenly one day she could read and I was stunned. And I, because I promised myself I wouldn't focus on building skills overtly like that with her, you know, I knew she just with her Mm -hmm. personality, she wouldn't respond well to it. And I didn't want her to feel pressured. And, and she goes to a very self-directed school 
Mm-hmm. She actually goes to um, a Reggio Emilia school. So the it's it's kind of similar to Waldorf and it's very much based on what they call provocation. So it's like they'll have a, a unit that they know they want to work on, for example, the solar system. And then they'll ask children questions. And based on what the children are interested in, they develop projects around those subjects. Mm-hmm. That, or I should say, like, in theory, it's wonderful because you're they're go- being guided by the students. But as you point out, there are kids who are just more naturally comfortable speaking up in groups than others. And I can't help but think that those are the kids who are suggesting the projects, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. so you still have, like, it's very, I think it's hard. So, I mean, the, one of the things that is remarkable to me is that it sounds like you also didn't stress about the specifics of the academics when she was very young. And, but didn't she graduate from high school early and like mm-hmm. went to a great college and, you know, mm-hmm. grad school and how do you think that affected her? I understand what you say about a situation with a a daughter who has a rhythm that may be different than when groups of kids get together and are comfortable with their excitement to share ahead of her. Mm-hmm. And so immediately I thought, wouldn't it be great if the teachers then had people write, had the kids write it down or even color it if they're not so conceptually based mm-hmm. with their interests? Because there's multiple ways of learning and Certainly, we have very diverse areas of intelligence, since it's not just cognitive, as we know. There's there's creative intelligence and mathematical intelligence and musical, you know, so there's lots of different areas that we had looked into before we had a child. We were really curious about this almost daunting event of bringing a human being into the world, and then how might they have the skills for self-learning and love of lifelong educating of themselves Mm -hmm. so that we wouldn't temper that, we would only ignite that. And so we also learned about unschooling, as you may be familiar with, which similar to homeschooling, it's at home, but it follows the guidance of the child, sounds similar to what this school you're daughter's in is about by really observing them and where their interests lie and then providing them with stimulus in that direction. Mm-hmm. And in unlearning, you don't stress about, are they reading at this level? Have they been tested? Do they know about the basics of science by this particular grade? And maybe the first year we wondered if we were in this experiment with this child, this person in our care, if we were creating you know, a, a, a problem person, for, you know, down the line, it was really risky in a way, but yeah. we tried to speak to teachers about it. We would put her in the field with different enlightened masters and say, you know, give us your feedback. What are you reading about her? And then we'd also sit in in classrooms with her of, you know, regular led kids her age and oh. just observe in the background. And we'd just see you know, we'd say to her, this is what other kids are doing. How does this feel for you? And we would do that once a year. And then we also went into classrooms like in Dharamsala, where we watched Tibetan kids. Well, this is what kids in other cultures are doing and learning. So we tried to have a breadth of investigation and curiosity each year. And then we'd sit down and we would make a contract with each other. And we'd write the pros and cons of going to school or staying at home. 
because she was not only a homeschooler, she was an only child, and then eventually an only child who was a traveling child, which makes it hard to sustain relationships when kids are so peer-oriented, you know? And we found that her interests were both scholarly. She loved to read. That made it really easy. And as Sophia did, I think kids innately will teach themselves to read when it's been around them all the time. Mm-hmm. Just like we learn how to walk by seeing humans around us walking. <laughs> These complex actions are something in seed form that will blossom in their own time. But, you know, the Waldorf idea is not to stress conceptual learning till after the age of seven. Mm-hmm. And Imani was reading to the kids in her Waldorf preschool wow. when she was you know, four and five. And the teacher kind of enjoyed some free time to herself and putting Imani in the circle and reading to the other kids. So by seven, she had read a lot of the classics already. And we thought, wow, she's really going to just interrupt all of this if she's put back in school where people are reading you know, about... Tom and Jane and throwing a ball. Right, (laughs) right, right. We thought, okay, let's stress languages. And so at the age of seven, we also brought in a French woman from the neighborhood who read to her and then started pointing out words from English to French. And so by the age of eight, she had that really in her system. And then by, I think it was 12, we went and lived in Paris so she could not just hear the language, but have to speak it more. Hmm. And by 12, also in the Bay Area, you can go to, as a homeschooler to city colleges. Oh, if wow. you get a note, I know I, I learned this from another homeschool mom when she was about 10. And so I thought, okay, well, two years from now, we'll do semesters where we stay home for the amount of time it takes to complete a course. And then we'll have our traveling around that. And all you needed was her to be seen by a school psychologist and given a kind of permission slip as having enough sophistication to sit among older kids and learn that that wouldn't be disturbing to the child's inner system. And she passed that test. And so she started, she went to college in Marin at 12 and learned Italian and Spanish and African-American studies. Wow. She just picked things she wanted to do. Wow. That's great. And we thought, wow, I mean, you know, middle school would be another place that might hold her back. And so we, she also went to a place where homeschoolers gathered to, to do arts and crafts. And she was into acting. So she was with other kids in theater programs and dance And by the age of 14, she said, I think I want to go to a school because I really want to meet more boys. (laughs) That's great that she's so honest. It was great. Well, at about, what was it, eight or nine, she went to a course for French after having this private tutor all those years. And after about three weeks, she didn't really want to go. And I quizzed her on it to see if it was about French or the teacher or the people in the class. And what was it? And she said, well, the teacher is pitting us against each other in comparison and competition. Mm. And I don't want to learn like that. That's just, that is for most people so, so (sighs) counterproductive to learning. 
<laughs> and it's so normal, we might not even call it out. Yeah. That's yeah. really where I thought, wow, being alone to learn all this time has made her see that there's a contrast. Mm. And I said, fine, honey, we'll, we'll bring you home. We'll quit that class. And if that teacher's style doesn't work for you, and we'll find another modality. And that's when later she found a, the teachers at College of Marin didn't do that. They more invited people to learn in their own way, just because it was older Mm-hmm. Older kids, and a lot of seniors, <laughs> mm-hmm. seniors who were just picking up their high school French again. And then one day a week, they would have conversation class about bringing in something that you'd cooked and speaking and eating all in French. And so it was really sweet. Wow. Wow. I think that must have been the time that I got to, you know, do follow-up studies with you, you know, up at a your run because you would be mm. home for that period of time and then you would take right. off and travel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I, yeah, miss, yeah. I miss that so much. Oh, it was such a sweet time. Yeah, it was such a sweet time. It was. And, and, you know, she went to high school and, and interestingly enough, she was 15, but she was, she, she didn't take any comprehensive test to get in. I think we just, we didn't put her in a private school because she said this in August and school started in September. So there was no time Mm. to put her in some of the best schools. So she went to this huge, you know, thousand people, Redwood public school. And we looked at what the curriculum would be. And so that she then got put into 10th grade rather than ninth. And so she was younger than everybody. But the thing that occurred was after about three weeks, because she had always had in her backpacks book because she loved free reading. And she started to say that she needed to hide them. The kids were making fun of her, mm-hmm. that she liked to read and time off. And then after about three months, she said, you know, I'm glad I'm only doing a year of high school to meet more kids because I'm losing my love of learning here. Mm, wow. Wow. Yeah. What an observant person. That was so interesting. So I asked all of her new girlfriends around the table one day after school, like, okay, girls, let's say you're a parent now and you've got a kid your age. Would you send them to school to do and learn the things you're learning? Or would you want to change that up? And they all said, oh, absolutely not. We we wouldn't want our kids to be exposed to what we're exposed to. And I just, that was really telling too. Did she decide when she was, like you said, three months into the school year that she wasn't going to go back the next year? Or did you sort of decide ahead of time, we're just going to try this for a year? And we'll see how it goes. We pretty much decided ahead of time because I'd already looked ahead for her at college. And I let her know in terms of college entrance exams that there was a whole other department that was valuing homeschoolers and allowing them to get in at places like Harvard and Princeton and Sarah Lawrence that would give her really an opportunity to go to some of the better schools that once you're one of many regular high schoolers, it can be, you're more of a statistic. And so I said, you know, you're going to be standing out if you maintain your homeschooler status and have only gone to school one year of your whole life. And so she said, okay, I'll just go for a year. And so that was 14 to 15. And at 15, she came out of that system and we were able to then sent her to Paris and she was an au pair. So she was taking care of a friend, a friend of our, who was a single parent. She took care of her eight-year-old daughter, took her to school, cooked for her meals, put her to bed. And then in her off time, she did SAT 
training so that she could take that test. And then by 16, she was in college. Mm. She never went back to high school. Wow. And she was able to manage just maturity wise in college, even though she was a few years younger. That was mixed. I would say that was probably one of the the areas of stretching her emotionally to fit in with kids. But, you know, kids are at very different levels of emotional maturity who haven't traveled. Mm -hmm. And because she was already sophisticated in her reading and her travels, her languages and her friend sets were she had really close friends who were adults Hmm. and then friends who were her own age and then friends of ours who had kids who were younger. So homeschoolers tend to not be so age specific in who they hang out with. And that I think was a blessing Mm. for being younger in a school. But I think she also maybe pushed to fit in at that time in a way that hurried her. If I would say that there was any shadow side to being 16 in a college set of, you know, 18 and older kids, at least she was in a very small college where Sarah Lawrence in in upstate New York, where if there are, is a big class, it's 10 people. Wow. I didn't realize that. Uh, It's amazing school. Yeah. I mean, everybody could get a lot from going there. It's, it's incredibly self generated learning. And so uh, like both one of her roommates had to drop out and the other had to take a year off because they weren't ready for all of the self-directed expectations that 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 school has of you. Mm -hmm. So there's no tests. It's all just writing. And they just say, well, this is what we'll want you to show us at midterm and this at the end of the year. And other than that, you get to speak to your professors personally once a week by yourself. And then you have a mentor who tracks you once a week for an hour. That's amazing. I mean, that's actually an amazing amount of time to get to spend one-on-one with your teachers. It's unheard of, I think. Yeah, it is completely. And she said her roommate was on YouTube most of the time at night. And then it just, just she fell behind. She didn't didn't have the self-management skills. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And uh, I can see that being a homeschooled child, you would, because you don't have someone saying, line up now, sit down now, wash your hands now. <laughs> right. <laughs> now. No, um, we, we were so casual, but because she was reading at such a voracious rate, I would simply say, well, when you're done, I'm going to give you some essay questions. And then eventually it was compare and contrast to other authors and other ideas. And so it was really just all writing. And then we had tutors come in for science and for math. And oh, okay. Ty also helped with that side. And, and as you heard, tutors for language. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. totally viable. It's amazing. It's amazing. One of the things that comes through in hearing you talk about it is it sounds to me like you took a, you and Ty took a very collaborative approach with her in your parenting. And Jason and I definitely do that not even necessarily out of a conscious effort. It's just how we both are. And it just came naturally to both of us. And we are definitely at the age where we're like, are we doing the right thing? <laughs> are we doing the right thing? She, There are times, right, when it's so wonderful because they feel empowered and they feel in charge and they they are fully invested in their decisions. And then there are times where you're just like, you just, I, I can't even think of a good concrete example 
but we're definitely experiencing both aspects of that style of parenting. And I think also maybe a little bit of worry. I have a little bit of like in the back of my mind, a little bit of worry. It's like, this is not a very traditional way. You know, is she going to be like a wild animal? (laughs) Or just the things that you were talking about when you, the first year you Mm -hmm. homeschooled, like, am I creating a monster? (laughs) Yeah. 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 A little bit. And I think that the truth is that either system, either at home or in the traditional schooling direction is going to have, you know, blessings and deficits. Mm. And that's why we made a contract. We'd say there were things that will benefit and things that may harm or be difficult, things that will be easier because you're home and harder because you're home, because you want to get away from us. And here I'm also your teacher. Right. And so times when I just want the house to be quiet. And yet when you're homeschooling, I hear my name, you know, every 10 minutes. Like, can I just have 20 minutes <laughs> go by? And so on both sides, there are challenges, you know, watching parents with kids in school and all of the things that they unwittingly adopt that aren't so helpful or healthy, the kinds of kids they gravitate towards. You know, she ended up in high school really interested in the kids that were at risk in a way in terms of their psychological stability. She she liked the edgy side and she liked also the pretty popular girls who ended up being at times, you know, devastatingly cruel and huh. She just said, you know, I'm just testing all everything so okay with you know us at home. I just like seeing how other families operate. And <laughs> she'd come home and tell me, you know, this girl who was extremely wealthy, whose mom was never home. She was always traveling with a new boyfriend and shopping somewhere. And she said that just they would say the kind of slander towards each other and the F word all the time. And she just said it was so toxic in their relationship. And here was, you know, someone that was just letting the world raise her kid and wasn't around. And that happens a lot with school kids. We can just give the responsibility over to a system. And it's not likely you do that when you're tracking your child every day. Right, right, right. It sounds like Imani Jade probably maybe also had a great deal of empathy for seeing these kids, you know, who are going <laughs> through different things. So. You know, in that one year of high school, she was edgy. We we had the cops in our lives oh, five different times. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that must have been <laughs> sh- sort of shocking, like, uh, uh, you know, having... You know, kids out of the 60s that we were, we were kind of glad to see that there was that testing of the boundaries of yeah of who one is she was you know doing drugs and testing with alcohol and looking at different relationships and yet she was still a virgin so we were in lots of communication about that and there was a, a way in which we also tried to be the house where everyone could land at the end of the night even if it was you know three in the morning even though she had a curfew we were really trying to be the safe place to land for all the kids. And often they would say things like, you can't call my parents, please. I've come here out of, you know, looking for refuge. So it was a very interesting time. And we also felt like a year was enough. She was becoming a different person (laughs) with the makeup and the push-up bras and, you know, curling her hair in the morning and wanting contacts instead of glasses to read and all those kinds of things that peer orientation makes happen. But she was, she was on a fast track for learning what diverse kids are like. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Wow. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. 
That's really interesting just to hear other people's stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and just to, and as she did graduate very young, which gave her an opportunity to look at, okay, I'm done with college and I'm 20. Oh, what might else I want to study? And so she went on to do, you know, another three year program in drama in London and just graduated from that and lives back in New York. And so feels like that's still a basically young age. She's been strongly educated both through traditional, you know, college and a kind of graduate school emphasizing her particular interests, as well as having all those years to learn in a style that was best for her kind of constitutional needs. So I love that we go on vacation and she just love, love, loves to read and hang out and, and learn. It's just great. That is so great. Did you see when you would travel with her that the the travel itself would wake up her learning, you know, would kind of like pique her curiosity about things? Definitely. I feel like that's one of the best educations you can give a child. And one of the things I told a lot of moms, especially who had adolescents, like when you're starting to see patterns that worry you greatly in those years of preteen into teen, one of the best things is to discuss them if you can and not just go for a week, but to really spend some concentrated time in both European and Asian and or, and or South American cultures because we, we grow in such specific ways with our conditioning. And to mix that up and be able to feel how people really relate from a more communal perspective. I think America is one of the most kind of separatist culture you can be in, that it's incredibly healing Uh, for everyone, for for the whole family. Yeah. Yeah. So you mean, so one of the advantages you're referring to is just like more sense of community in in other countries than you notice in the U.S.? Yeah. yeah. I mean, just to be in Italy and France where everything in Spain, everything shuts down midday because you're gathering together and having a meal and you're talking about politics and art and emotions and what you're reading lately. And then you can take slow life, you know, in Spain, take a nap and then and then come back to the day in a different context. I mean, that's mm. the Scandinavias. I mean, where there's lots of documentaries now about how much the quality of living in Europe is just considered so much higher for kids. And I would say also just being in Asia, where there was really a sense that the wisdom traditions, even when they're really background and maybe just in people's altar space with the understanding of the spirituality that the grandparents carry, that there was just embedded in daily life a sense of the sacred. Hmm and connection to the earth and the heavens in ways that is, you know, almost absent, even in some of our Judeo-Christian religious orientation, if you were to go to Sunday school or, or prepare, let's say, for bat mitzvah, you might not necessarily have embedded in you that sense of solidarity with the shamanic tradition of being intimately connected to the planet. So Africa was you know, also a great trip that we took her on in her youth, uh, two different times that we felt was a huge turning point mm. in her connection to herself, to life, to others. Mm. To so She's half black, so we felt like that was essential. Mm. So... Mm. 
I have a huge question. <laughs> so you might need a moment to think about it, but I'm interested to know how you feel that your regular and ties, regular immersion in spiritual practice have affected her. So, you know, I'm not asking like, does she practice yoga or does she meditate? But just what do you think the ways that your own practice came into play in your parenting and and influenced her? Because I define practice as that which accelerates our natural evolution in our connection or relationship to our bodies, our hearts, and our minds. I've been cultivating physical practices and psychological investigation and therapeutic modalities as well as meditation throughout her entire life. Mm -hmm. So just in terms of modeling what an adult needs to mature, to be somewhat content or when one's not, to be able to acknowledge it sooner than later, say I'm sorry, and then repair and start again in relationship and to get the help one needs from therapists and you know retreats that emphasize the the growth of our understanding of what it means to be human and then to just see us sitting quietly and meditating i think all of that in the field as exposure naturally made her feel that there was much more support in her parents than just what we said to her hmm. In other words, we my job as a homeschooler, the older she got, was to direct her towards appropriate mentors, to not feel like I could give her everything she needs. And so she saw that we felt that too. We were going to teachers, we have therapists that we turned her for our own you know, psychological development and wounding, and that we would also go to masters and learn how to meditate and then adopt methods in that would turn into how we were parenting her. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so she, as as one example, she just in learning Homer and Shakespeare and, you know, William Blake and Jane Austen, while she was reading all this great literature, I was in yin poses. She would read to me out loud and then we would have discussions. And then eventually she enjoyed taking, you know, copying me while she would read. And so it just became an environment that you could engage the body in different shapes. And at that time, you would also be able to multitask in a way, you know, be involving your mind in different ways of learning. And so I think without even knowing that the yin poses were stimulating particular energetic channels that influenced organ health, she just would feel like she had more longevity with the experience rather than getting uncomfortable in a chair, for instance, that kids have to sit in classrooms in. Right. Other days when she was just in a room by herself, I would notice she'd read a little bit and then she'd turn on music and she'd dance for a while. And then she'd come back down and she you know, would read for a while and then she might go out and you know play in the dirt, <laughs> you know, with the roses. And so there was this interactive field, I think, that living while learning was just natural. And then 
in terms of the psychological dimension, she knows that we went on retreats specifically to heal wounds that we carry from our childhood. And we would have discussions that our patterning as parents as she got older, especially as she was you know, 16 and older when the sophisticated parts of the brain start being more evident just in the way she would dialogue with us, we would, especially when we either of us felt like we had crossed the line and been inappropriate with her or been too, either too strict or too allowing mm-hmm. of something, we, we would self-correct sometimes for each other and with each other. And then we'd discuss that with her and say, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect person. We're constantly growing and learning with you and because of you and because of our own interest in a yogic practice life. And I think that gave her permission to reflect back to us, you know, the places that we needed to pause and listen to her and her own then compass could grow and she would realize she had wisdom to offer us. It wasn't just a top-down model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also I feel like when you have that kind of relationship with your child, they respect you even more. You know, it sounds like, I mean, I think so much of the time what we worry about as parents is if we show too much of our, fo- you know, our foibles, our flaws, they'll have a better means for resisting us. They'll sort of question our authority more. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's not necessarily about authority. It's about them respecting your thoughts and opinions so that then they can digest them. And like you said, if they have a differing point of view, they can offer that. I, I already find this with Sophia. You know, they say that at this age that they're not quite rational yet, but she is actually really rational. It can take mm-hmm. her some time. But, you know, if I have clear reasons for something that has to get done, like we can't do that activity for that much longer because this, this, and this, it's like, mm-hmm. there's a pause. Oh, okay, mom. You know, and mm-hmm. that sounds like you are doing really um, insightful and uh, curious parenting, Andrea, which is, I think the best we can offer mm-hmm. is the insight that Kids like to feel like they've got some control. So if you give them a bandwidth of time and say, these are your choices within this amount of time, and then this is going to happen, you ultimately are making executive decisions while giving them empowerment to make the decisions within the bandwidth that you're offering. Right, right. And and then you'll get much more acquiescence than Mm -hmm. resistance. Mm Right. And that's the thing that we constantly gauge is going forward. As, and, and inquiry is one of the best. Like We love as adults to be asked, you know, how are you? And then not just how are you, but how are you relating to what's going on in your life? And to ask her at whatever age, whether she's four or seven or 17, you know, so you know I need this from you. And how is that for you to hear? What is that boundary like for you? Hmm. And then the validation of their perspective and their needs is just such a way to create a dynamic of self-respect in them and towards you as the parent. Yeah. And they trust, and they trust you too. You know, uh, I think in parenting in decades past, that wasn't seen as necessarily 
important. You just, you were an authority figure and you wanted Mm -hmm. them to respect authority, but really you want them to value (laughs) your, Mm -hmm. your thoughts. And I think in order to do that, you have to value theirs too. Mm -hmm. I agree. I definitely agree. I feel like that you want them to see you in a leadership role and at the same time honoring that they've got unique perspective of creativity that can influence you when it's safe to do so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yes. That's very well said. You've thought about these things for longer than I have. I can tell. (laughs) Well, you know, the sixties really brought in that, you know, giving kids more permission to have a say, but then there's that over permissiveness that can create terrors. Yeah. And I saw that with a, a lot of kids around before I had parents. I mean, <laughs> before I became a parent. And I really felt like, okay, the over-authoritarian or over-permissive, both you could call those child abuse in a way. Mm-hmm. And so to have that gentle line in between, and it's a moving line, so it's something to stay awake to. And it's hardest when we are stressed ourselves about money or not having enough sleep or our health. Mm-hmm. And so I would say having a, a perspective on life to become more balanced in your life, in your physical, emotional, and mental dimensions is going to greatly affect the place the kids are raised in, which is home. Mm-hmm. And so that is, in a way, a, a direct influence on them is to not be overexhausted, overexpended, or rushed. Because then kids learn that you don't have time for them or your life. And they will easily, even if it's not expressed distinctly, they will implicitly adopt that for themselves. And you will see that coming right back and watching how they relate in their lives. And that's painful. Yeah. I just was thinking when you were talking about over-permissiveness, I notice in the moments where I'm over-permissive, which tends to happen when Jason's traveling and my defenses are down, (laughs) you know, it's just super challenging sometimes that it makes her feel lost and and anxious, right? Mm-hmm. They they need yeah. to know that someone sets the boundaries. They'll. Exactly. I have a kid that will push against them incessantly. That's what makes her feel safe. It just doesn't. And I feel like in the long term, over permissiveness, it almost leads to like, like the sense of emptiness, you know, instead mm-hmm. of purpose. That sounds insightful as well. Yeah, yeah. giving them appropriate borders gives them a sense that we're holding the greater meaning for their lives rather than them constantly trying to make it up for themselves without enough perspective to do that. So the inner world feels more chaotic. Mm -hmm. And that then feels really kind of like an existential crisis at at many ages where that's not a good time to be wondering about the meaning of life yet. Right, right, right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's nobody taking care of that if there's no adult that really feels their own meaningfulness, really. Yeah, it also strikes me. I I really love. It's a good reminder to me because we still live in a city, and which we love. There's so many things we love about the city. We love our. We live in a neighborhood that's just like a small community. Feel you feel the sense of community. There's so many wonderful things. She comes up against so many different kinds of people. She's unafraid to talk to anyone, even though she's a fairly shy person. The, the downsides of the city are the expense and just the sense of sort of busyness. Even even though we work for ourselves, there's just this feeling of pressing in on us sometimes. 
Well, if I could just add that when one does work for themselves, and both of you do, you can actually be busier than people who stop the clock at five or six because they work at a job. Yeah. It can go bleeding into home life, nightlife, relationship life. And so you have to be really good with integrating different shifts of importance through the day. You have to be super vigilant. And that, and that's actually reminded me of what I was going to say is it's, Mm. it's nice to hear that you and Ty both consciously set aside time for retreats for yourselves or more learning for yourselves or more growth for yourselves. Mm. It's essential. Yeah. I mean, it's, we all have, I feel multiplicity in our personality. And so I have learning parts that really start getting me anxious if they're not being fed. (laughs) And then I have other parts that just love to the play of story and want to read novels. And then other parts that just really want to be out in nature and not think about a schedule at all. And then I've got the the parts that really help me stay on track with my schedule as it is being lived. And then as I look forward to a year and two years from now. So I do feel like having an intimate relationship with the various aspects or voices that we all carry inside us is essential if we're going to live a balanced life. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you model that for her and you model for you, you modeled for her the growth mindset too, that, we don't have to be good at something right away. We're not going to be good at everything right away. And we're constantly learning and we can, you know, we can shift and, and transform at any point. Yeah. There's this great line, fail yourself into success. Hmm. Oh, I you like know. that. I, like yeah, I mean, that's how you learn to walk. You fall, 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 fall. And eventually you stand and eventually you take a few steps, but then it's fall, fall, fall. So I think it's a great analogy for everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to ask you to to tell people uh, about the kind of yoga you teach about insight yoga and the different components of it, because I still rely on the different components that you introduced me to. And then I would love to know how your teaching is going these days and what you're up to. Okay. Well, insight and yoga together simply refer to yoga being a, an opportunity to bring together ancient methods from India, China, Japan, Tibet, that you could say the Asian wisdom traditions, into uh, systems of study and practices or behaviors that help us integrate the body and mind, since yoga is basically the verb to join or to yoke. And so... I feel blessed and so privileged to be exposed to all these streams within this topic called yoga. And so I have active postural practice of what people might normally call hatha yoga. And then I also have a practice of holding poses on the floor, which becomes kind of like a therapeutic method of self-acupuncture that has grown into being called yin yoga, which is helpful if I'm unwell and helpful as a preventative to keep me well, because it's a way of stimulating the inner channels that move through the organs. And so yoga is also a physical practice for me, like it is for most people these days. But under that umbrella of a term, I also include 
discovering the ways in which some of my early training in terms of the conditioning from my family and my schooling are still influencing my moment-to-moment reality in terms of my level of consciousness. So the psychological dimension has always been really interesting to me. So I trained as a psychologist before I became a yoga teacher, but that was 32 years ago, and I've continued to train in different modalities as a therapist ever since. So for me, the word yoga also means the integration of the emotional and what you could call the psychosomatic dimensions, the way our body holds a lot of wisdom when we know how to listen and understand the relationship to direct knowing that affects our psyche. And insight is a term in Buddhism, the term would be Vipassana, but it refers to being able to see in and recognize both our patterns that we create a personality around, some of which are wholesome and helpful, and some of which we grow out of, and some of which are needing to be looked at because they're more toxic and can be released. And so insight into our personality as well as insight into who we are at our essence. So the idea being that each of us in our core carries resources of support, you could say positive support of awareness that we can taproot and live from. And so insight into both our everyday personality structure and insight into our natural, whole, true self. I think when those two words are brought together, for me, it inspires the idea of, as we've been talking about for our children, of kind of lifelong learning and growth, but at the same time, learning how to relax into accepting ourselves as we are right now, and that being able to hold those two, the kind of vision of dynamic change and the compassion of being awake to who who we naturally are mm-hmm. at this moment is uh, a, a daily endeavor. So that's what I call practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I go... <laughs> um, Indian yoga and Chinese uh, acupuncture theory and the three schools, Buddhism and spiritual psychology, the elegance of kind of the Western modalities of tuning in to the psyche. And so all of those streams feed the way I practice. And so, of course, in terms of my teaching, insight yoga is really just how to integrate the body, heart and mind through physical yoga, psychology, and meditation. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot, and you do it so skillfully and so artfully. (laughs) It's a lot, but when someone asked me recently, I said, well, when someone on a plane asked me what I do, I simply say, well, I'm interested in developing and then sharing with others psychosomatic practices that are, you know, holistically about our humanness to live in a wholehearted way that encompasses love Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so one sentence for all of it (laughs) yeah it's it's like the art of living 
the art of living. So I have so many teachers who listen and I do not teach yoga myself these days, but I am relating more and more to their, just the, the, the challenges that they go through. And I'm wondering how long did it take you to feel like you could incorporate these different pieces, right? That weren't all just from, you know, let's say the Iyengar tradition, here's how to do it. <laughs> the Ashtanga is taught by Patabi Joyce, but you, you incorporate all of these different aspects of your own learning. How, mm-hmm. how long did it take you to feel like confident in that? Or was it even a conscious process or did it kind of evolve on its own as your teaching evolved? Well, when I look back at starting the process of having a personal practice in a dedicated way, I was about 23. And I would say that it took about seven years to feel like integrating these various styles. And I was passionately uh, obsessed, you could say. I was going to yoga uh, workshops every weekend and practicing six days a week, integrating what I learned on that weekend. And I was going to class three days a week, usually Mysore style Ashtanga, doing Iyengar workshops on the weekends, and then three days a week, just doing my own practice, listening to what my body needed. And at the same time, reading a lot and in a graduate program for psychology. So it was really those seven years where it was all just turning on the lights inside in different patterns. And yet I was—I had already started to teach at about, I don't know, 24, 25. And I would just teach, you know, a, a physical practice with a little bit of interest in the psycho-spiritual that I would bring into the Shavasana moments and just a little bit of what I had already learned in my own body. And it was really gradual, but after about seven years, and it was also the time when I, after I had my daughter, that I thought, okay, I'm going to just integrate all I've collected for a while now and not add add anything more for a while. (laughs) Because that will destabilize what's already doing at this point. And I think that's important to listen to for all of us. Like when are we filled up and we're just going to more trainings or learning more from a teacher where we haven't even deepened what we've already received from them enough to go to the next level. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say everyone needs seven years. That was just my, as I look back, my full point where then for the next few years I was I had Imani at home, so I wanted a home birth, and I I wanted to really be at home and not hand her off to caregivers for a while, so all my classes were at home or I brought her to them. And so there was just a feeling of nesting and, and pulling in, pulling back, and for me, the practice time was governed by her sleep rhythms, and when she awoke, if she slept for 15 minutes or an hour, she was my timer. You know, and that was how long I practiced. <laughs> and, and then just feel like, okay, I'm also learning how to relate to rhythms with another being. And my meditation was during nursing, and I nursed for three and a half years. And so it just felt like this is the time to just let life and my experience of what I've collected teach me. And then as she 
you know, started to, of course, grow and change and have little bits of more autonomy. When she was five, I thought, okay, the, the students, student parts in me are ready to be influenced again. And because I had the benefit of having a, a father for her, I really trusted and grandparents around, I left her with them and I went off on retreats. Again, I went for first for three days and then a week and then three weeks. <laughs> and then I just started being influenced again. And then I started feeling like the rhythm of seasonal input. So four times a year, I would either do a weekend workshop or go on a retreat. Began to be a way then that I would spend the rest of the time having already matured enough to have an understanding of my own system and how best to influence it, that that began to be a nice bleed through of learning from experiential insight and then getting teachings from other people who were then giving me borrowed insight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that'll be really encouraging for people to hear that it took seven years to start to, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I, I just, I know that what I sense so often is that people feel like they're failing in the beginning because it doesn't feel completely integrated right away. And it, it can't. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't teach a teacher training until I'd been teaching for 10 years. Mm -hmm. I think teachers are rushing mm -hmm. much more than is healthy for them as, as the student part of them, because then they're pushing to teach things they haven't integrated yet. Yeah. And that in a way can both trivialize the teachings that they only know on the cognitive level, but not in their bones, so to speak yet. So I think it's best to teach what you feel you have digested. Mm -hmm. And if that's only a little bit, just teach that while the student you is learning much more than you're teaching yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always like being with a teacher who's way ahead as a practice than they're sharing as the teacher. Hmm. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's like this mystery and this hidden material. You can tell behind what they're teaching that if you stick around long enough, and they continue to grow in a practice, it'll kind of be never-ending. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting. I could never, I've not ever even taught all that I've practiced. Mm. And I've been teaching all this time. Yeah, and I, I think it's also helpful for people to know that they can give themselves that time to learn and integrate and still be a good teacher in what they're teaching, that they don't have to bring it all in right away you know, and feel like there's, a, there's any rush to that. Yeah. No, the opposite. Yeah. No, I, that's, I, I studied how, how to educate because of homeschooling. So how to educate students is to also give them time and space to breathe into each layer so that each foundation has some vertical steeping before horizontally, you just add more to it. Hmm. Yeah, Jason often, I mean, his like main mantra with his teacher trainees is, you are a teacher and you're teaching a subject. <laughs> it sounds so basic, but you know, it's like, I think so often we, we get caught up in wanting to convey, just, just to convey everything. And when you really mm -hmm. just think of it as a subject and you break it down for yourself, and like mm -hmm. you said, what you're able to teach, what is integrated for you what you under truly understand on a deep level. Mm -hmm. then and I often it. start, exactly. That's called transmission. Hmm. That's in 
field orally between us in the chi distribution of them breathing in and us speaking out or sharing or showing. So there's this sense when I start teaching new teachers to is to remind them I'm just sitting here as a student, a student of yoga, a lifelong student, and I'm just temporarily sharing my practice out loud. Mm. And I'm sharing that portion of the practice that I hope will be relevant for where you are right now. And so that way, when they then go to teach, they then steep in the practices shared and then share with whatever level of development those students who come to them, what would best like the Buddhist story of, uh, are there more leaves on the tree than in this handful that, that I'm holding right now? And they'll say, students obviously say, oh, in the tree. And he said, and I'm only going to share what are in my hand. Hmm. <laughs> You know, there's distilling just what's appropriate for today or for this particular group. Am I teaching beginners or am I teaching people who have practiced for a year? Am I teaching people interested in the body only or are these people interested in the body-mind connection? And am I teaching meditators? If I'm teaching meditators, do they understand there's a lot of emotional hindrances that they're going to be taprooting? So we're going to have to look at how our patterns of resistance are operating. We can't just try to sit quietly and think meditation is something separate mm -hmm. from who we are in the everyday world. You know, so it's like that. Yeah, completely. That's so, so <laughs> helpful. Even for me, even for me, it's, it's helpful to hear. Yeah. You know, I've never shared this with you, but I want to just let you know that back when I did my training with you and came, would come to Deer Run, I was single. And very much wanted a partner. And I would just observe you and Ty in like little interactions after class or something. And I, I always felt such a sense of ease and love between you. Of course, love, but, but in a, in just in this very easeful way. And it really helped me to find my partner. It really helped me to see that that was such a clear possibility of a long-term relationship. Um, I think, I don't know, as a young person, I spent a lot of time feeling so much anguish in relationship. It was nice to see that as a possibility. And I, I hold that in my relationship now with Jason. Mm, that's very heartwarming to know. <laughs> yeah. You guys are empty nesters now. So what, it sounds mm -hmm. like you've got some exciting plans. I'm not sure if the, the beginning of our interview will if we, you talked about Mallorca once I started the interview, but yeah, will you let us know what you're up to? That's right. That was also part of your last question about insight yoga and what I'm also teaching right now and what we're like as a couple now, it sounds like, and those are always mingled together since these last mm, probably 30 years together. We've been together 36 years. Wow. And, <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. Congratulations. We, yeah, thank you. We are best friends. And obviously, that is a really helpful ingredient in a relationship that also for us, parented in a homeschooling way, and, and we're business partners, and we co-teach. So there's a lot of areas that we intersect. And so sometimes one of us just needs to go on solitary retreat to just not have every day be so intersecting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's beautiful and it's beneficial. And last year I took five months and did self retreat, and that was something I had been planning for a long time, and that was really juicy. Wow, that's exciting. Mm, I waited till Imani felt like that would be okay with her because, we, of course, even though she's 26 now, we we have constant communication. And even though we were empty nesters when she lived that year in Paris at 15 and then she went to college at 16, we moved back in together in her early 20s and she was living in New York. So we lived for two years together there and then we separated and moved back to California. Then she moved to London for a few years by herself. And then we moved to London and she moved in again. (laughs) And we spent a year and a half together here. And now we're in London and she's moved out and to New York. And so we have a feeling that, you know, as we continue on this journey of life together, that maybe someday we'll have apartments in the same building or next to the same street. That's what we all hope for. Sounds like a dream to me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like lots of traditional cultures do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's the least amount in America, but in, in most places we go, you'll hear these generations living close and lots of contact and communication. Yeah. Um, in terms of my my teaching life, I've in the last couple of years started teaching more in-depth inner practices uh, or the the bridge of the cultivation of the subtle body and fed through the streams of Tibetan Buddhism and Taoism with this way of looking at the psyche in a multidimensionality through IFS therapy that I trained in the last few years. And so that's what I call a level two, although a lot of yoga teachers sign up and say they've done level ones elsewhere. And we try to say, well, we're really calling this an in-depth level two. You need to probably have come to my primary levels in order to really understand my interdisciplinary approach rather than have studied even, let's say, with Paul in a level one, Paul Grilly. Mm-hmm. Because yin yoga is now global and people learn it in specific ways. But I'm really interested in these kind of psycho-spiritual integration from a particular lens. And so I've been really enjoying that. I just finished that here in London and it was five days. And I'm going to, in the future, only teach it in retreat setting. I think it needs an even stronger container than a city. And also what I've, one of the reasons I came to London this year to live was because I did a six-month program for 24 women who had been long-standing yoga teachers, particularly including yin yoga in their repertoire. And they all had to have already done a lot of personal therapy and been meditating for a few years. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. Mm-hmm. I brought things I would never dare to teach in a shorter paradigm. So people came with me once a month for six months for four days And just having 24 and being able to track, because I also was able to mentor them in the weeks that we didn't get together one-on-one. And then they also each had to teach the Buddha Dharma to each other, each class, each each day, each month. And I got to track them as teachers of the meditative practice of Buddhism. Hmm. And so there was just another deepening of being in a kind of mentoring and kind of Kalyana Mitra, you know, spiritual friend role hmm. for these women. And I made it very feminine based 
to empower some of the places I feel globally that women can feel more insecure in. And then we did a whole ritual of even choosing new names that were more just secret names for your the sacred feminine within you. And so anyway, I'm going to continue to do that. That sounds so fun. (laughs) That sounds Mm -hmm. amazing. They got really close as a group, but uh, this next bandwidth of time, I'm going to change to being in a retreat format and do it so that women from all over the world can gather. And it'll be three retreats over the course of uh, almost two years, six months apart. And I'm going to do that in Mallorca because I found a lovely little retreat center there. And that starts in 2020 in the spring. And so I'm really looking forward to that because I can just bring things I never could because most of the silent retreats Ty and I teach are at this point, there's about 50 to 60 people who come. And there's only so much in-depth I would want to safely go into, you know, with that many people in the room. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different, different feeling. I love the energy of a lot of people, but I also am loving and will continue to offer these small venues going forward for long-term practitioner teachers. And do you have a newsletter? How can people find out about upcoming events with you and Ty? I do. Uh, and both for both of us, it's on my website, okay. which is sarahpowers.com. And the Insight Yoga Institute is a button on that website. And the newsletter sign up is right on the front page that would then just send occasional notices about where and what we're up to and what we're offering. Because Ty and I teach together for silent retreats in two locations at this point. Right now it's in in Italy, in the mountains uh, near the Alps, which is above a lake, beautiful setting near Lake uh, Como. Mm -hmm. So Italy twice a year, we teach retreats and we get people from all over coming there and then upstate New York Nice every summer. And so that way we can have an ongoing community, even though we don't teach in one location Mm -hmm. in terms of dropping classes. We just don't have that opportunity to do that anymore. Yeah. And then I lead my trainings and then these um, extended practices with mentoring people. So Ty and I are also very busy working with people one-on-one on on Skype as therapists, kind of mentors. He's also a life coach. So I know he told me about all the trainings he's been doing. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I find that if I could never teach again for some reason, I'm f- fully fulfilled working one on one at home on a regular basis. I love that because, mm. of course, that's the most beneficial when someone can have that touchstone and that support for going right into what they need the most and being able to help see more clearly about what that is. Yeah, absolutely. And so we live in London, but as you heard, we also just rented a place in Mallorca. So for now, we'll probably be mostly able to be found in Europe. Well, I'm glad to know that you're in upstate New York in the summers because I I now feel like my daughter is old enough that I can get back into doing some learning on my own. So, so great. We'd love to have you. And so you'll always, and it's someone like yourself, especially yourself just raises the force field of the retreatants. So it'd be a blessing for all of us for you to come. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was so nice to reconnect with you. I feel so, so inspired by this conversation and Mm. I just, I just wish you all the best. 
Oh, thank you. I so loved reconnecting with you, and I can't wait to see your daughter one day. I know. Me too. Send me a picture. Will you do that on email? I Send will. me a of you. Well, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Blessings to you and all of you. You too. Show notes for this episode can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 134. And again, if you're interested in learning more about the meditation invitation I am doing in January, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash sit with us and join this small email list. And I promise I will only use this email list for this specific program. I won't be reusing your email for anything else. And I will send you more info as it is ready. All right, everyone, enjoy your holidays, enjoy the experience of closing out 2018 and all the promise and opportunity that a new year gives us. Take care of yourselves and take care of those you love and do your practice and do your self-care and I'll see you in the new year. Conversamos tanto, desarta hasta temprano.